are listening to Revelation, God Wins, from Coram Deo Church, a gospel-centered missional church community in Omaha, Nebraska. For more information, visit cdomaha.com. This morning's reading is from Revelation, um, all of chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. We are almost uh, done with our study of Revelation. We're actually going to wrap the book up next week and then uh, spend the summer learning from the Psalms. And so before we dive into this chapter that you just heard read, I want to add one announcement uh, to the ones Justin made. And that is just to give you an update on giving since the month of May is behind us. And so as you'll see on the slide that's behind me, we are once again ahead of the game for uh, the month of May. And so that's good news. So I want to celebrate that with you. Uh, If you want to know how to give at Coram Deo, the answer is uh, there's an offering box in the back. And so if you're looking, we don't take an offering. That's where you put it if you want to give. Uh, You can also give on the city, which Justin mentioned earlier. And so I want to thank you those of you who give faithfully and who are contributing financially to the work that God's doing here. And uh, obviously, as we look at ending this lease and taking on a different one and moving our whole church to a different space, that's going to require some financial resources. And so uh, it is good news that we are tracking ahead of budget for the year and that God seems to be uh, providing for our needs. And so I wanted you to be aware of that. 
and thankful uh, with us for that. We're going to focus this morning really on the last half of Revelation 20, the chapter you just heard read. Uh, But before we get there, I need to say a few things about the first half. And the reason is because the first half of Revelation 20 is perhaps one of the most debated and discussed passages in the book of Revelation because it describes this great angel who comes out of heaven and binds Satan and throws him in a pit with a chain for a thousand years. And then Jesus reigns and the saints come to life and reign with him. And then at the end of this time, the devil is released and there's this climactic final battle. And so, as you might imagine, the questions around this text center around what exactly is this thousand-year reign of Jesus? What exactly is this binding of Satan? What is this talking about? And how is this actually going to play out in the story of God and in history? And so what I want to do is I want to overview for you three historic ways of looking at this text, three perspectives, you might say, on understanding what is going on in this chapter of Revelation, specifically the millennium and the millennial reign of Christ or this thousand-year period. So let me overview them for you. First of all, this is sort of just the know your Bible, know your theology. This is for free. Uh, It's extra credit, all right? So premillennialism is one way of interpreting this text. It says that this is speaking of Christ returning and reigning on earth for a thousand years. And during this reign, Satan will be bound but not destroyed. And so the effects of sin and of wickedness will be greatly minimized but not altogether done away with. At the end of that thousand years, Satan will finally be destroyed and we will see new heavens, new earth, God's consummation of his kingdom. Uh, So this is one way of looking at this and it's held by some very wise and very good and very godly Christians. Another way of approaching this text is what's called post-millennialism. In this perspective, this thousand year reign is talking about a period of glorious spiritual and cultural renewal that either has already begun or will soon begin. But the point is, it takes place in history. And during this millennium, Christ is reigning in heaven. This is not Christ reigning on earth, but rather in heaven. And that the fruit of that reign, the fruit of his victory, is visible as the gospel transforms and renews cultures and civilizations. Uh, Some of the most articulate and thoughtful Christians in history have held this point of view, not least of them, Jonathan Edwards, who is perhaps one of my favorite dead guys, all right, so uh, when people like that hold this view, you know this is a weighty and robust way of understanding scripture. Uh, If you actually, the people who make the best arguments for post-millennialism basically say, look, any culture in which the gospel goes and begins to penetrate, it has a a leavening effect on society. So you do see cultural chains social renewal, the structures of society become changed by the gospel, and so this, this is normal, is what you should expect, okay? A third way of understanding this text is called amillennialism, ah meaning none, in other words, they don't believe this thousand years is a specific thousand year period in history, but rather that this is just another way of the many symbolic ways that Revelation refers to the whole age between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Okay, so this is that whole same period that the whole book has been talking about. And that Satan was bound in Christ's death and resurrection. That what that is talking about is the victory that Jesus won on the cross over Satan. And so if you look at the text, it says that Satan's prevented from deceiving the nations. And so ah, millennialists would hold that 
when Jesus died on the cross, Satan is prevented now from hindering the spread and the growth of the gospel. The gospel actually does get to go forward to all nations. Satan can't stop it. He can't hinder it. It will be preached in all the nations, as Jesus said in Matthew 24. And so this vision is to prepare God's people for a long time of mission, which will include both triumph and suffering before Christ's final return. So basically they're just saying it's, a, it's another way of the same cycle that we've seen repeated throughout the whole book, which is a long time of triumph and suffering and the growth and progress of the gospel in the world. Now, all three of these positions are well attested in history. They're well attested among current scholars. They're all well within the bounds of historical Christian orthodoxy. So which one should you hold? How should I say this? It does not matter. Okay, uh, here's, what I, here's what I mean to say by that. At Corondale, one of the metaphors we often use is we talk about the distinction between uh, theological convictions that we hold in the closed hand and theological convictions that we hold in the open hand. Okay, There are some theological convictions that are worth fighting about. There are others that aren't worth fighting about. There are some that we hold very tightly to because they determine the boundaries of orthodoxy. There are others that, don't, that aren't determiners of orthodoxy, and therefore we can agree to disagree about them. The closed-handed issues are primarily the Apostles' Creed that Justin just recited for us, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the atoning death of Jesus, his coming again in salvation and judgment. These are closed-handed issues. Okay? They are things that we will fight over. They determine the boundaries of orthodoxy when it comes to Christian theology. There are other things that are in the open hand. It's okay to disagree. It's okay for Christians to have different convictions about them. One, for instance, would be the particular mode and method of baptism. Every Christian agrees, closed-handed, you need to be baptized. Okay? Christian traditions disagree on how should that baptism be done and when should it be done and do you sprinkle or do you dunk or do you hold them underwater three times? I mean, what do you do? All right? It's okay to disagree. We agree that the baptism needs to happen. It's, there's freedom to disagree on the mode and exactly how it takes place. The same thing is true with this millennial perspective. They're all three well attested in scripture and in theology. It's okay to hold any of these views. You should, you should reason through it and try to come to biblical convictions. But at the end of the day, if we don't all agree, not a big deal because you know what? All three of those perspectives hold to the same closed-handed truth, which is Jesus is coming back. Jesus is going to judge everyone. There is going to be final judgment. And Jesus will reign, okay? There will be new heavens, new earth, new kingdom. All of that is true. It's just a question of when and how does that all play out. So this doesn't change a thing about our mission, right? Or about our calling here. Do we expect and long for and hope for the soon imminent return of Jesus like the premillennialists do? Yes. Do we seek after the renewal of culture and society like the postmillennialists millennialists do. Yes. Right. And do we believe that there's going to be a long period of both triumph and suffering, that we should be prepared for both the glories of the triumph of the gospel and for persecution and suffering like the amillennialists believe? Yes. Okay. So whichever perspective you hold, we all are agreed on the same core central realities of what those say. So the main themes of all three views are the same. It's just a question of how does it all exactly play out? And that's something we're willing to say, that's open-handed. We're not exactly sure how exactly all this works out in history. All right, so with that sort of sidebar taken care of, I want to focus on the second half of this chapter, which has to do with final judgment. 
Okay? And I want to look at three things. The reality of Judgment Day, the nature of Judgment Day, and the paradox of Judgment Day. The reality of Judgment Day, the nature of Judgment Day, and the paradox of Judgment Day. So let's begin by looking at the reality of Judgment Day. Uh, The first thing I want to just lay before you is the fact that the Bible says here in Revelation 20, there will be a Judgment Day. There will be a day when you stand before the throne of God and give account for your life. It's, It's just clear, it's plain, it's right here. Now, I realize many of you are skeptical and critical, and you would say, well, listen, I mean, that, I realize why you want there to be a judgment day, because of course it'd be great if everybody has to stand before some supernatural authority, but listen, that's sort of outdated, outmolded, old, traditional religion, and aren't we enlightened, and haven't we moved past that, and can't we just agree that there's not any final day in which we answer to God? Uh, if that's where you sit this morning, what I want to challenge you with is, That's a trade-off you don't actually want to make, okay? You want there to be a judgment day, and let me tell you why. Because if you look at the world, you will notice great acts of injustice, oppression, genocide. There's all kinds of evil in the world that is beyond just people being mean to each other. If you look at what's going on in Bosnia, what's going on in Rwanda, what's going on in the Sudan, uh, there, there are massive injustices that cannot be reconciled simply by the execution of human beings of justice. No matter how hard we try with military might and with legal action to arrive at some semblance of justice on earth, it falls far short of what actually all of us long for, which is to see wrongs made right, to see people held accountable for the things that they've done. The only hope we have for some true standard of justice is if it's true that every human being will ultimately answer to some higher authority who doesn't bend the rules to suit what works for them. Right? The challenge with human justice is it's always flawed. It never works quite right because all humans are flawed. And so even our best attempts to accomplish justice fall short of what true justice would be. Our only hope is if every one of us has to answer to some higher authority, if there's some bar by which all human actions can be measured, by which everyone can be held accountable, and to which everyone will be judged. And that's exactly what we have in Judgment Day. All of us will stand before God, and he will apply an immeasurable, unchanging standard that doesn't get tweaked based on who's in the courtroom, or how good a lawyer they have, or what the systems of politics have dictated but it's going to be fair and just and equal. You want this if you're concerned about the problems of justice in the world. Moreover, you want this if you want to live a Christian ethical existence. Right? What is the ethic that Jesus taught? Turn the other cheek. Right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive those who mistreat you. If you look at the ethics of Jesus and ask the question, how could I possibly live that way? The only answer is, if I believe that ultimately at the end of time, everyone is going to answer to God. If I, it's only if I defer justice that I can live with injustice. Otherwise, it would be unjust for me to live with injustice. Right? If someone wrongs me, 
I need vengeance. I want them to pay right now for what they did. Only if I can defer justice and know that in the future there will be some higher court to which they're accountable, only then can I really live the ethic that Jesus taught, which is to turn the other cheek, to forgive those who have wronged me, to extend mercy and grace to people who deserve instead judgment and retribution. Final judgment is what we all want, whether we know it or not. And the text in Revelation 20 is clear. There will be a final judgment, and it will be impartial, and it will be clear, and it will be public. Okay, notice the text says that I saw a great white throne. Okay, this is the throne of God on which he is to judge all of humanity. And it says, earth and sky fled away from his presence. The idea is God is here as creator, and because of the weight and the significance of his being, not even creation can stand. Right? God as the creator, when he sits in judgment, sits in judgment on everyone and everything. And it says, both great and small are brought before the throne. Both the powerful and the weak. Kings and peasants. Those who have great means at their disposal, those who have no means at their disposal. All are brought before the judgment seat of God. And it even says that death, Hades, the sea, everything gives up its dead. Right? All dead Human beings are brought in their resurrected state before the Lord for judgment. This is in keeping with the rest of Scripture and what it says about Judgment Day. For instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay? Common sense statement. All of us are going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's just how it's going to be. So the first thing I want you to see is just the reality of Judgment Day. This is going to happen. You will stand before God and give account for your life. And this is good news. It's our only hope for true justice in a world that's full of injustice. So, having understood the reality of Judgment Day, let's look now at the nature of Judgment Day. Uh, This may surprise you. Look with me in Revelation 20, verses 12 and 13. What's the nature of Judgment Day? I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Twice, this passage reiterates for us, you are judged according to what you have done. Perhaps that surprises some of you who understand grace and who know that you're saved by God's grace. But the Bible's crystal clear. When you stand before God on judgment day, you will be judged according to your works. You will be judged according to what you've done. Uh, This isn't just in the book of Revelation. This is the consistent witness of the New Testament. Listen, for instance, to the words of Jesus in Matthew 16. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
Romans 2, verse 6, God will render to each one according to his works. Revelation chapter 2, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. The consistent witness of the Bible is you get what you deserve. You are judged by God according to your works, according to what you do. So listen to me. What you do matters. The obedience or disobedience of your life matters. The words you speak, the actions you take matter. This is going to be the means by which God judges you at the end of time. I mean, I want you to see, this, we're just reading the Bible, right? I'm not quoting from the Apocrypha, right? These are Bible verses. This is Jesus saying, you will be judged according to your works. I want you to get this clearly and see that it's reiterated twice in Revelation 20. Final judgment is according to what each person has done. So this then brings us to the paradox of judgment day. If it's true that our final judgment is according to what we've done, then that would lead to the conclusion, wouldn't it, that what I need to do is to be a pretty moral, pretty decent, pretty upstanding person, and assuming that I live that way, it'll go well for me on judgment day. That if I'm judged according to my works, then I want to be the best person I can and roll the dice, and if I'm better than the people around me, then it would bode well for me on judgment day. That would be a natural and normal conclusion. That's why people conclude that. It's because the Bible says it. They're not making that up. The Bible's clear. God's going to judge you based on your works. And so the natural conclusion would be, well, then I just need to be a good person. But see, there's this curveball that gets thrown at us at the very end of Revelation 20. Look with me at verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so, is that, is that weird or is it just me? Like, God has just set you up. You will be judged according to your works. You are going to answer for the deeds you have done. And then when it comes to the end, and it's who gets thrown into the lake of fire, who gets ushered into the kingdom of God, it's people whose name are written in the book of life. It's sort of like God changes the rules of the game here, right? The people that escape hell are the people whose names are written in the book of life. Well, what is the book of life? And what is this saying? What, how is the book of life different from the register of all the deeds I've done in my life, whether good or bad? See, this is the paradox of Judgment Day. And the beautiful thing about this paradox is that God is teaching us what grace is and how grace works. See, here's what we have to realize about God's justice. As we said already, God's justice is impartial. It is fair. It applies the same standard to everyone. Now, if God's standard for judging you at the end of time was, have you been a better Christian than Bill next door? Okay? Great. I'm fairly convinced all of you would be motivated to be better than Bill next door, whoever that is. But the problem is that's not God's standard for judgment. God's not judging you based against some other human being or some other really moral person. 
Rather, the standard for God's judgment is His holy, perfect, divine law. His standards. His rules. And see, the problem is, when measured against that standard, none of us will be able to stand on judgment day. Romans 3, verse 10 tells us there is none righteous, not even one. James chapter 2 tells us if anyone keeps all of God's law, all of God's commandments, and yet stumbles at one point, he's guilty of all of it. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20 says, there's not a human being on the earth who always does what is right and never sins. So the problem is, when measured against God's holy, perfect, righteous standard, if, if our obedience, if our works are the basis of salvation, all of us end up in the lake of fire. None of us make it past judgment day. And see, this is where grace breaks in. What is this book of life it's talking about? Notice it said previously in the passage, books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. What is this book of life? We actually have seen it earlier in the text in Revelation 13, verse 8. said this, All who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written from before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. In other words, this book of life belongs to, it is the property of the Lamb who was slain. And we know from the rest of Revelation, that is a symbol or a title for the Lord Jesus, and specifically, Jesus in his atoning work, his work of dying and shedding his blood for the forgiveness of sins. So this book of life is a book that belongs to Jesus and that encapsulates or encompasses the work that he did in his atoning death on the cross. See, here's... Here's what happens. Jesus is a human being, right? Jesus is God born into human flesh, incarnate. Jesus is the only only human being who has ever lived a fully, perfectly obedient life. Jesus is the only one of us who at the last day will be found perfect. He's the only one who would make it through judgment day based on his obedience to the perfect law of God. Because Hebrews tells us, He was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So he lived a life that could actually stand on judgment day. But when Jesus died on the cross, what he did is he exchanged his obedience for our judgment. What Jesus was doing on the cross was he was taking judgment day for his people. And he was imparting to his people his perfect obedience, his righteousness. So he takes our judgment, we get his righteousness. And the Bible says when Jesus accomplished that, when he went to the cross and accomplished that great transfer, he did so for his people. And that he wrote their names in the book of life. Another another way to say it is to say this. Jesus did not die on the cross hypothetically hoping that some people would trust in his saving work. Rather, Jesus died on the cross with specific human beings in mind. He died on the cross to take judgment 
for his people and to transfer to his people his obedience. The reason we know that is again, Revelation 13 verse 8. Look how it frames this. All who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written from before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. When did this book come into existence? Before the foundation of the world. Jesus went to the cross knowing for whom he was dying. Taking their judgment on himself so that they can be freed, delivered on the last day. This is the same language, this idea of being called into Christ from before the foundation of the world is the same language we find in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where Paul begins this great letter extolling and praising the mercy of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. You see this repeated theme that before time, God knew and chose for himself a people and sent Jesus to die and to take their judgment. So what all of this means is, if your name is in the book of life, your salvation is secure. It's taken care of. It's done. It has been done since the beginning of time. So the natural question is, okay, so how do I know if my name's in there? Right? That sounds like a good deal, but come on. Whose names are in there? Open up the page and show me. How do I know if my name is in this book of life? Well, here's the questions you need to ask. Have you trusted in Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus? If so then it bodes well for you because the Bible says no one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Spirit. So see, the, the beautiful news of the story of God is God doesn't tell you if your name's in the book of life. He says those whose names are in the book of life are guaranteed assured of their final salvation. And here's how you know if you're in there. Persevere in the faith. Trust in Jesus. Be my disciple. Follow me. This is the whole nature of the book of Revelation thus far. What has Revelation been telling you? Hey, hang in there. Endure. Persevere. There are going to be trials and tribulations. There are going to be temptations that come your way. Persevere. Walk with Jesus. Hang on to the faith that you've established. Those whose names are in the book of life will persevere to the end. They will be faithful. But listen, it's not that doing those things gets your name in the book of life. It's that if your name is in the book of life, you will do those things. Being changed by the grace of God results in a disposition, an inclination to trust and worship and obedience, to follow Him, to serve Him, to love Him, to cling to Him. Uh, the, the Bible puts it this way, we love because He first loved us. Right? How do you explain loving God? 
Well, you explain it by the fact that God first loved us. See, I want you to see that part of the point of Revelation 20 is to bring together the reality of grace and the reality of obedience and put them together in your mind. Because for some reason, what we want to do is to say, I'm saved by grace, so it doesn't matter what I do. Or we want to say, I'm not so sure about grace, so I'm going to do my best to really, really obey so that God will favor me on the last day. For some reason, we have a hard time embracing the grace of God and the mercy of God and how it plays out in and is manifested in our obedience. But see, that's exactly what Revelation 20 says. If you are saved from the lake of fire, it's because your name is in the book of life. It's because of the grace and mercy that Jesus showed you in dying for you on the cross. And it will be manifested in a life that is obedient to God that is pleasing to God, that the the fruit of your life will be obedience and joy and good fruit, good works. In order to give you even some more categories and some more language for this, let me draw from one of the historic catechisms or creeds of the Christian faith. Uh, We've been using the Heidelberg Catechism this year in our professions of faith. Uh, I want to use the Westminster Confession of Faith this morning, which is about 100 years later than the Heidelberg, it comes to us from the 17th century from primarily the English Puritans. Here's how they try to frame and explain this connection between the grace of God and obedience. Listen carefully. Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes of being in the favor of God, those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace. In other words, that they really are born again, converted, that their name is in the book of life. They can be assured of that. So I want you to notice, they're already acknowledging there's two kinds of people. There's some people who vainly deceive themselves with false hopes of being in God's favor. But how do you know those people? Well, you know it because they don't truly believe in the Lord Jesus. They don't love him sincerely. They don't endeavor to walk in good conscience. Those who truly love him, those who want to sincerely, genuinely obey him, those who endeavor to walk in good conscience, they're different. That's the fruit of grace. They continue. This certainty is not bare conjecture, but an infallible assurance of faith. It is the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience which are the proper fruits of this assurance. Did you catch that? What's the fruits of assurance? What's the fruit of knowing that I have experienced God's grace? Well, the fruit of it is peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Love and thankfulness to God. Cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. I I love that phrasing. Because all of us want to say, well, I don't really feel like doing it, so it must not be what God wants. No, it's saying... Obedience is going to be a duty. There are things you should do because they're the right thing to do. And here's how you know that it's motivated by grace. 
If there's a cheerfulness in that. If you hear duty and obedience, not as some moral standard being imposed on you, but as, well, yeah, that's, that's what I should do. That makes sense. That's what I want to do. I, it might take some work. It might be hard, but I, I want to live that way. There's a cheerfulness, a joy in it. See, this idea that if we are saved by grace, then it doesn't matter what we do, that is a pernicious lie. That's the work of Satan himself. The truth of Scripture is that you are saved by grace. You are saved by virtue of the unmerited favor of Jesus Christ for a life of obedience, virtue, holiness. You don't get saved so you can get your bus ticket to heaven and do whatever the hell you want. You get saved so you can obey and worship and honor the Lord Jesus Christ with your life. This is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right? By grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, in case you were still thinking it's something you did. It's not. It's not as a result of works, so no one can boast. It's sheerly God's grace through faith. And then verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Why are you saved by grace? So that you can live a life of obedience and worship to God by doing the good works that he prepared for you to do. You have to see that grace and obedience work together. And on judgment day, you are judged according to what you've done. But ultimately, you are spared from hell because your name is written in the book of life. And those are not two separate things. They are one and the same thing. They are the work of God's grace in your soul manifested in a life of obedience. In the book of Matthew, Jesus tells this story. And it's a story about Judgment Day. It's one of his more famous parables. And as a matter of fact, even if you're not familiar with your Bible, you've probably, you're probably familiar with this story because it's one of the more popular ones that Jesus told. It's the parable of the sheep and the goats. And so Jesus says, hey, on the last day, I'm going to come and sit on my glorious throne and I'm going to gather all the people before me. I'm going to separate them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so sheep on the right, goats on the left. Okay, this is his way of saying exactly what Revelation 20 says, that at the end of the time, people are going to be separated, either those who have been written in the book of life or those who haven't, those who are Christians or those who aren't, those who do love God or those who don't. There's only two categories of people, ultimately. And so Jesus says, I'm separating the sheep and the goats, and I'm going to say to the sheep, hey, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, because I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, I was naked and you clothed me, I was in prison and you visited me. And I'm going to say to the ones on my left, hey, um, depart from me into the eternal fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels because I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. And so you have this parable where he's setting up two different responses uh, to those in need. And he says, to, this, to the extent that you've done this to the least of these, you did it to me. But you know what's the fascinating and odd thing about this parable? is the response of the sheep to what Jesus said. Jesus says, hey, come into the kingdom I prepared for you because I was thirsty and you gave me a drink and I was in prison and you visited me. 
And it says, the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, uh, we're kind of missing the point here. When was it that you were hungry and we fed you? I don't really recall doing that ever. Can you remind me when it was you were in prison and we came to visit you? Because it's a little fuzzy in my mind. I can't remember ever having you over for dinner, giving you a cup of water. I, I don't remember that. See, the fascinating and odd and weird thing about this parable is that the sheep have no consciousness of the good deeds they did that are the virtue of Christ accepting them into his kingdom. They're not keeping score. They're not counting up their good deeds so they can present them to God and say, God, here's all the good stuff we did. Now, can't you let us into your kingdom? Rather, these good deeds are simply a spontaneous overflow of a life that's been transformed by grace. They can't even remember. Jesus is essentially saying, oh yeah, yeah, you remember remember that single mom in your missional community that you helped out with some of her financial needs? That's what I'm talking about. Do you remember that homeless guy that you welcomed into your church community and and fed and helped get some job training so he could get a, a better job? That's what I'm talking about. You remember that student that you took under your wing and discipled and helped understand what it meant to walk with God? That's what I'm talking about. You remember the kid down the street from the broken family that you just sort of loved and accepted and let eat at your table and hang out with your family even though he really wasn't part of the family and you showed him love? That's what I'm talking about. See, Jesus says, the righteous, the natural overflow of their life is a life of good deeds. And they're not keeping track of it. They're not doing it so that God will owe them something. They're doing it out of the spontaneous overflow of a heart that's been changed by grace. There will be a judgment day. And on that day, you are going to be judged by God according to your works. But you see, the paradox of judgment day is What you've done doesn't save you. What you've done shows whether you have been saved. It is the expression, the manifestation of God's grace in your life. You can't stand on judgment day. But Jesus stood in your place. In fact, he hung in your place on a bloody Roman cross. So that though you cannot stand on judgment day, his obedience, his righteousness is given to you. And your name gets written in the book of life. If you're not yet a Christian here this morning, if you're, if you're not yet one of those people who's embraced the Lord Jesus in faith and in worship, here, here's the good news. Judgment day isn't here yet. It hasn't come. This is still something that's out there in the future that we have not yet experienced. And do you know why? The reason is because God is continuing to gather a people for himself. Jesus says, I have other sheep that aren't of this fold that I must gather to myself. The reason this hasn't happened yet is because the invitation is still open. The full number of God's people has not been gathered yet. And so the beauty of it is, listen, This is still available to you. 
And I hope you see in even how we set up and frame this conversation that what's not going to happen now is we're not going to sing a real slow song and try to whip you into an emotional frenzy so that you can respond and raise your hand and pray a prayer and come down the aisle and, and trust in Jesus. Because at the end of the day, that sort of manipulation doesn't gain anything. Rather, what we want to do is to help you see, here's the beauty of the invitation Jesus offers. Judgment day is coming. It's a reality. And on that day, none of us is going to be able to stand before God and say, oh, I lived an awesome life. I deserve your kingdom. Rather, every one of us is going to stand there and either be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus or have nothing. And so Jesus invites you, he welcomes you, he beckons you and says, listen, if you'll embrace me in faith, if you'll cling to me, if you'll worship me, if you'll believe that I really did trade your judgment and give my righteousness to you, you can be called into the people of God. You can receive the blessings and the benefits of the work Jesus did. And you can stand on judgment day, not because of what you've done, because of what Jesus did for you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are thankful this morning that at the end of time, we do not stand before you based on our own merits, but rather that judgment day for your people already happened on the cross that when you poured out your wrath on the Lord Jesus, and when the sky grew dark, and when he gave up his spirit, when you forsook him, you were expressing toward him the judgment that we deserve. And so thank you, Jesus, that we can stand confidently and assuredly in the work that you've done for us. And thank you even, even more that, that there will come a day of final judgment where all that is wrong in the world will be made right, where, where there is a reason for us to hope and have joy and confidence that the same standard will be applied across the board, that no one will get away with evil just because they're in a position of power or because they have money or because they can hire a great lawyer or because they know how to work the system. But rather, at the end of time, all of us will stand before you and our only hope will be Jesus and his obedience that's credited to us by faith. So God, I pray you'd help us trust in and hope in you. And Jesus, I pray for those who do not yet hope in you, that they would respond to your gracious invitation, that they would find their hearts this morning strangely warmed toward the offer of grace that you hold out in the gospel, that they would feel you drawing them to yourself in joy and in worship, such that the fruit of their life would be joyful, obedience for your name and for your glory. Amen.